Hello, John Elder here, science editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the COVID conversation. Today, I'm talking with David Chalk, social scientist, analyst, and futurist. For decades, David has measured the effects of cultural change on Australians' attitudes and behaviours, and advised on the impact of these on the formulation of effective public policy and business strategy. First though, David, my favourite description of you is cultural soothsayer. If the world ever needed a crystal ball, this is it. How's yours doing? What's it telling you about the here and now? Well, I'm, I'm afraid I've given away the crystal ball because it's all through a glass darkly at the moment. Um, I reverted to uh, interpreting the entrails of chickens, which I've bought from a wet market in Wuhan. And they're giving me a pretty good read on what's going on at the moment. All right, what's that? <laughs> well, if I can adapt a quote from one of our many recent prime ministers, uh, this is certainly the most exciting time to be a social observer. Uh, we're undergoing the greatest cultural and social experiment uh, since World War II. Um, but this time it's against an invisible enemy against which we appear at the moment to have no defences. Um, so when it comes to predicting the future, we're all seeing through this glass darkly. And if there is a word of the month other than ISO or COVIDiot, it's going to be unprecedented. And it is true. We have never seen, certainly in living memory and possibly in uh, the last hundred years, a confluence of both uh, pandemic and economic collapse that we're seeing at the moment. So the public mood today is one of anxiety, confusion, fear of the unknown, loss of control, uh, all of which means that we're incredibly skittish and unpredictable. Um, there is an overload of information swamping them. At one level, you have the highly credible and believable chief medical officer or officers around the country and the leading politicians. Then you've got the, dare I say it, the uh, somewhat sensationalist media who are picking on every little half-truth, half-story and trying to beat it up into something, through to the scammers and snake oil salesmen who are trying to sell us $20,000 machines that are going to cook our food and cure our... Uh, <laughs> COVID-19 for us. It, when, you, when, when you put it like that, it's, it's, it's almost like business as usual, though. Well, it's, it's even worse. I mean, we coast along and people will have a fairly clear idea of, you know, roughly what's right and what's wrong. And uh, the old thing, if, the, if it looks too good it, to be true, it probably is. There's a, norm, there's a normal level of cynicism in life that gets us by. However, at the moment, everything's up in the air. Who knows? Who knows with this deadly thing? Have I touched something that somebody with the virus has got? And is it going to kill me or my mother or my grandfather? I just don't know. And it is this terrible fear. Oh, and by the way, I've lost my job. Um, I just don't know. And so is, so is my wife and so have my kids. Hell, what are we going to do? We've run out of toilet paper. It, there is this incredible sense of uncertainty, which which lends itself to people being uh, taken advantage of. Um, internet scams apparently are on the rise. Well, of course, nature does love a vacuum, though, and, and 
politics is what's interesting to me at the moment because it's all about governing and getting things done. Ideology is out the window, although, as Paul Bongiorno has pointed out, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison and the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg have gone out of their way to say that their big spending strategy has the thumbs up from the Liberal Party's Yoda in the form of uh, John Howard. Still, our politicians are busy doing things uh, well, instead of uh, trying to remake the world. In, in, well, instead of trying to make the, remake the world in their image, how long can it last and how much does the recovery of the economy and social confidence rely on it keeping on? One thing about heading into a crisis, and we've seen this before, um, is that two things happen. A lot of existing trends suddenly get accelerated. The pedal gets put to the metal behind those existing trends. And the other one, completely new ones emerge. And we saw this after the Second World War with the arrival of uh, the 60s and 70s, where whole new cultural milieus developed. But one of the trends that has been important in the past has been a desire by the Australian public to, for the government to do its job, to get on and fix things, to keep things sweet to leave me alone, let me look after myself and my kids and make sure that they've got a good future. But otherwise, just get on and fix things. It's your job to make things work efficiently around the place. It's not my job. And one of the interesting comparisons that we've made in the past is between Australians' dependence upon government to keep things sweet and the comparative level of interest in government in various other countries. And one of the remarkable things about Australia is that despite our self-belief, our self-image of being the larrikin country, that we don't take anything too seriously, you're not the boss of me country, we are one of the most dependent upon government to keep things working for us. In comparison to other major countries such as China and America, the Americans actively distrust their their governments and always have done. And the distrust of government over there at the moment is nothing to do with Trump. They've always uh, distrusted their governments. And that's why they've built in the checks and balances that they have into their political system. But we, we, have, we have had a, a, a long period of time of feeling that the coalition government really hasn't been doing much at all. They've sort of been uh, obstructive on issues like climate change and so forth. Uh, and, and there's been this sort of a sense of stagnation. Now it's it's uh, you know full steam ahead and full steam ahead in a way that sits completely at odds with uh, um, old school coalition um, ideology. It's out the window. Yeah, ideology has been dying. This is one of the trends that has been accelerated. It has been the death of the old tribes, the old associations, the old divisions between left and right, free market versus um, socialism, that's all been dying. And certainly the political observers and the bongiornos of the world don't want to see it because that's the perspective that they see the world through. Um, but as far as the punters are concerned, they, they don't care about that. They just want to see things working. They don't care about those ideological well. differences. I suspect that ideology is alive and well among people at home with plenty of time to ferment their grudges, and I'm talking about, you know, people who are holding certain grudges. But on the other hand, maybe fear and gratitude that things could could be worse as they are overseas. Perhaps they're softening even hard nuts around the edges. Is that naive optimism on my behalf? Uh, to an extent, yes. I think what is happening is that 
uh, we're seeing a revival of Australian exceptionalism. And we got this in the GFC when everybody else was going bung around the world and the banks were going bust. Our banks survived, not merely survived, but thrived. And we thought, oh, that's the Aussie way. Yeah, the, the big four pillars, that's what we need. That sense of high government involvement, um, bit of free market, but lots of regulation. That'll do us nicely, thank you. Uh, and what we're seeing now, again, is a revival of that sense of Aussie exceptionalism. Okay, luckily we're an island, and so that helps us uh, keep the, the evil virus at bay, apart from the odd cruise ship that slips through the net. Um, but essentially, yeah, the Aussie way is doing well. Our balanced system, the balanced health system we have, that's not as extreme as, say, the NHS in the UK, nor as so totally dependent upon private uh, involvement as it is in the US. And we have a nice balance between state and private, and the two are working together, and we've got plenty of beds, and gee whiz, the Aussie system's working well. So we're seeing a revival of that sense of... Um, nationalistic pride in a way, then that's not going to go away. And certainly when we come out the other side, uh, the need for strong borders, the need for, uh, I don't think we need quite as much population growth as we've been having in the past, a bit too much congestion, etc. A need to get, look back, perhaps, if you will, at some of the old ways and the old values. And we're seeing signs of this coming through already in terms of uh, where are the queues? They're outside Woolworths, Coles and Bunnings. Uh, the return to self-reliance, the return to old craft skills. I mean, at the moment, uh, my wife is in her sewing room sewing up scrubs for medical staff, volunteering. Got the pattern, got the material, and she's sewing away out there. So there is a return to a lot of those old-fashioned values coming through. Well, there is, and there's a sort of almost a nostalgic sense of you know sewing socks for the boys at the front. But I, yeah. I, I take you back a minute to the idea of Australian exceptionalism and our health system, which is a very good health system. There's no denying it. But you know, it actually hasn't really come under pressure yet. Um, it certainly hasn't come under pressure in terms of ICU numbers related to COVID nineteen. I mean, they always tend to be full because of just people being sick. But it hasn't yet really come under pressure. Economically, we're under pressure. But uh, I, I do wonder how we'd go if, um, if numbers really started to spiral in terms of uh, confirmed cases and deaths. Well, this links back to what we were talking about before, about the confidence in the government. What the government has done is clearly working. We are seeing, they t keep talking about flattening the curve, which is about uh, flattening the curve of rate of infection. So rather than having a short, sharp peak that completely overwhelms the health system if you reduce the rate of infection. I mean, at the end of the day, we are all going to become infected with COVID-19. There's no way out of it. We haven't got a vaccine. There isn't one in the foreseeable future. If they do get one, who knows how well it's going to work. Inevitably, we will all become infected with COVID-19. So that the, the pressure for us overall system is to keep the rate of infections down to a level below that which the health system has a capacity to handle. And that's what we're doing. We're doing it very successfully. And if you look in the papers, you'll see lots of comparative graphs that shows our rate of infection beginning to flatten out. And the, the danger, of course, is that we will become uh, complacent, that the uh, the exceptionalists will say, oh, well, it's not really, it doesn't really apply to me. You know, I can be let out. 
and we'll see a second wave of infection. And in fact, we saw this. Um, there is, as we keep saying, it's unprecedented, but it's not that unprecedented. When we look back at the data from the uh, great Spanish flu uh, pandemic in uh, the 1990s, 1920s, and there was very good record keeping kept in the, the United States. And there are some lovely case studies where you can look at the different responses by the different cities and the different counties to, so you can compare those who clamped down on social interaction right from the word go and they got a nice slow increase which they managed. Those who then clamped down and then let go too soon and you see a second wave of infection springing up even higher than the first one. So there are, there are lessons out there to be learned. So our medical advisors are not necessarily flying completely blind here. There are precedents that we can work to. So one of the big risks is that the uh, people will start getting bored with the restrictions. There's a certain novelty of it, first of all. But people get bored and people say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. I can go out. I can do. And of course, we'll start seeing the potential for another breakout and another rise in infections. As a social researcher looking at the situation, what is the thing that you're most afraid of? Oh, well, uh, I have a foot in both camps because uh, I am a social researcher now. But a lifetime ago, I was an epidemiologist. Uh, So I have a foot in both camps on this one. What am I concerned about? I'm actually most concerned about the power of social media. Um, it, it is, unless you're living in China, where they can control it with the, uh, the great firewall of China, it uh, removes from government one of its most powerful means of communication, which is the main media. And certainly the main media was the most powerful means of communication during the last half of the 20th century. What we're seeing now, however, is because of the rise in social media, which feeds on that desire to talk to people like us who we know and trust, and often that trust is much higher than it is for government or other institutions, Um, we can use the social media to do that. And what we're doing, what we're seeing is, of course, The danger of social media is that it is, in fact, nothing but a series of collective little echo chambers in which we just speak to people like ourselves who share the same worldview as ourselves. And it may not be good information that's being swept around inside those little echo chambers. So to me, the biggest risk is we're going to see the rise of uh, the individual and the rise of exceptionalism. Yeah, I hear about the rules, but it doesn't apply to people like me. And you're already beginning to detect this coming through. Um, You can hear a lot of it on talkback radio, and you can see it coming up in social media, this sense that, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's good for everybody else. But look, I don't need to have this control imposed on me, or I can go out paddleboarding, or I can do this. Um, and that is the biggest risk to the next breakout is combination of complacency and individualism. Well, of course, while the police are on the job, that makes it a bit difficult. I suppose the more severe version of that is, is just is, is social unrest. Do you think that's a possibility? And, and do you think that's a possibility here? We really are an odd bunch uh, in comparison to other cultures around the world. We are a very communitarian bunch. And so social unrest in the broadest sense, uh, is highly unlikely on Australia. We're not into that. What you may well find, however, is a lot of breakouts around the fringes. 
with certain groups claiming that they are uh, they are absolved from this social responsibility. Um, and I think that is more likely. You're not going to see uh, the sort of social unrest that, uh, say, was demonstrated in Hong Kong before the uh, virus appeared, um, or Paris in the 1960s with people ripping up the cobblestones and throwing them at the police. Uh, you're not going to see that form of social unrest. What you may see, however, is a, is a less willingness to comply without it being enforced through draconian measures. And we, we, we will take a lot of draconian measures. Look at the, drug, the drink driving laws. We will happily accept rigorous policing if we believe it's, it's for the general good. And, and it's always a balance. To, if you're going to bring about behavioral change, you have to have both carrot and stick. And it's always just a balancing act between how much carrot and how much stick. Plus, there's also the room for self-reflection at the moment, I guess one might say. I read a couple of days ago in the New York Times about Cyrus Habib. Now, he is the blind lieutenant governor of Washington State. He announced that instead of running again in November as a shoe-in to win and likely to take over as governor, uh, he plans to become a Jesuit priest as a less ego-driven way of serving people. It's, it's a nice story. And the author in the paper noted that uh, Habib's humility reflects, and I'll, I'll quote him here, the sort of moral inventory that many people conduct at a time of great suffering, the type of spiritual epiphany they experience in the face of terrifying uncertainty. So are we, are we all engaged in this, in this moral inventory or something like it? What do you think? For some, w without question, it, this recognition of the fragility of the civilization or the way of life that we've built is quite remarkable for many people. And they will look at it and they're seeing some of the pictures that are appearing on Facebook and all the rest of Indian cities where for the first time in decades you can actually now see the Himalayas because the air pollution has dropped because of the reduction in economic activity in the area. They're seeing that, and yes, it is a cause for reflection, and it is driving many people to look for not necessarily a, a religious experience, but at least perhaps a more spiritual one. Um, certainly, the rise of atheism and agnosticism in Australia is not going to be reversed by this excess, by COVID-19. Um, we are now predominantly agnostics and atheists, and although many of us will tick the box that says a particular religion when we go into hospital or we fill out the census form, um, most of us are actually lapsed, whatever it is the box we're ticking. Um, what I believe is happening is that we will reevaluate ourselves and there will be a resurgence of many of the old-fashioned virtues, uh, thrift, prudence, self-reliance, self-denial even to an extent, restraint. Those sorts of virtues will re-emerge amongst lots of people. Not everybody, because there will, in any crisis, there will always be those who go the other way and say, here's an opportunity to exploit my fellow uh, humans and take advantage of it. But I think certainly for most, the, the resurgence of some form of spirituality will be there. However, the, the reality is we are going to be living in a world that is dominated 
by the cold, hard science of genetic science and the mathematics of infection rates and mortality rates. Um, therefore, I think we're less likely to seek succor in organized religion as perhaps in the days of the Black Death when there was no other explanation for what was wiping out half the village. What we have today is a recognition that, yes, medical science has a vitally important role to play and this thing that is killing us is not is not a plague wrought by God and we it won't be followed by the rivers turning red and the death of the cattle and the death of the firstborn. Um, it, it, it is something which we can identify back to what man has created and therefore that may force some sort of re-evaluation. And in fact, uh, I've recently read E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops, uh, which I, I was forced to read at school and thought, yeah, it's quite interesting. And now suddenly the revelations in there are quite interesting when it looks at how the artificial civilization created eventually gives way uh, because the machine stops uh, and people are then re reverting to a far more natural, holistic and empathetic lifestyle. And we may well see more of that and the unremitting pursuit of progress uh, in the physical sense may be replaced by a, a pursuit of progress in an emotional and a spiritual sense. David, you and I have been talking for probably 20 years on and off for, for different stories that I've written and also just to, I guess, to say hello. But we're often talking about the growing significant resentment and loss of trust that many people had for politicians, for the elites, who I always find an interesting bunch, and the experts, which included scientists. Let's stick with scientists for the moment because scientists are now seen, well, I think they are, as an essential service. They're the great hope of liberating us from COVID-19. Do you think scientists are for the moment rehabilitated in the public mind or is the distrust strong as ever? Uh, pick your scientist is the answer to that question. <laughs> if you're talking about medical scientists, genetics uh, epidemiologists, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, yes, top of the heap, highest on the trust on the trust ratio. And uh, to a large extent, they always were. Um, where every time you do a survey, it's essential services, people who have the highest level of trust, doctors, nurses, fireys, ambos, they're always top of the heap. Uh, politicians are always way down the bottom. Uh, that doesn't necessarily translate to all scientists. I'm quite sure computer scientists uh, will be in reasonably high demand and high prestige as we all try to come to grips with getting our computers to work and deliver uh, Zoom meetings for us effectively. Um, so they will do all right. Other forms of scientists, I don't know. Environmental scientists, perhaps not, um, because they're not dealing with the immediate existential threat of COVID-19, but they're dealing with models and projections way out into the future. And so that uh, there may not be the spillover into other forms of science just because it's science, but certainly medical science will remain top of the tree. As for politicians, I think we are so pleased with the way that our federal uh, commonwealth and state leaders have come together and presenting a largely unified uh, face 
to the rest of the world, how they're enacting sensible, practical things that are actually producing results. And you can see the results in the paper each day. Um, we're delighted by that. And we think that's what politicians should always be have been doing. And in fact, you can see it, you can see it bouncing back when Albanese tried to play a bit of uh, party politics right at the beginning. He very rapidly realized that that's actually working against him. It, it's going against, that's not what we want to hear. We want to see everybody pulling Well, so, well everything, everything's very basic at the moment, isn't it? We just, you know, everything, everything's focused on, on very basic things, you know, getting enough to eat, making sure, you know, trying to get uh, money to people who've lost their jobs, that sort oh, of thing. Oh, absolutely. We're right, we're right down the bottom of the hierarchy of needs. We're, we're looking at basic survival. Um, we're not uh, too worried about self-actualization up the top of the hierarchy. This is fairly basic stuff. And this is what you get with um, what people call the blitz mentality. Yes, it is. It is a matter of survival. And therefore, you, you will find people adopting survival behaviors and recognizing that a lot of the other stuff really didn't matter. It wasn't that important. You know, I didn't need a new BMW. I can get by with the old whatever it is I happen to drive at the moment. And and you're seeing that reflected in what people are spending their money on at the moment. Tell me about the elites. Your your home talked about the elites. I was sort of mystified a little about who they were and what's their relevance now in this situation. They would seem to be perhaps not. I I think the elites have been completely sidelined and they are irrelevant to practical people who do practical things, uh, um, whether it be filling the shelves at Woolies and Coles, whether it be delivering, driving the truck that brings the... But, but, but who, who were they? Who were these elites? Oh, who were the elites? Well, the, the elites, I think, were very crudely defined. You could, ju you could define them in, in all sorts of ways, but one way you could define them on their media usage and the papers they read, the radio stations they listened to, the television programs they watched. And there clearly was a grouping around uh, ABC Radio, the Fairfax Broadsheets readership, who had a very progressive view of the world, were highly educated, um, were completely disconnected from the ordinary folk, you know, the, the, the tradies who live in the outer suburbs. And there was a huge disconnect between the two. Now, historically, the elites have always had uh, you go back to the days of Chifley and uh, so forth. The leaders then always had that ability to keep in touch with the ordinary folk and to take them along with them and be concerned with their concerns. What's happened in recent years is that uh, this over this, shall we say, overly educated class um, has become increasingly concerned with its own concerns and completely lost touch with the concerns of the rest of the public. And when you see that gap opening up between them, that's when you get the distrust um, and the lack of faith in the government. Listen, um, about five years ago, I interviewed you about the idea that the gradual decline of the baby boomer was being accompanied by the death of the big trend. Both dominated the latter half of the 20th century but you argued that both were being consigned to the scrap heap of human social development. Instead, you said that we will experience an unpredictable and often disconnected roiling of short-lived moments that will often disappear as quickly as they arose. 
Has the global plague upended your theory? No, it's reinforced it because the, the, the <laughs> people most likely to die are the over 60s. So I am right in the crosshairs of this damn virus. Um, so <laughs> the millennials have complained about the boomers. You know, okay, boomer, get over, give me some of your money. Well, the virus is going to do it for them. It's going to wipe us out. Um, being less, That's right, being being less and flippant. Uh, yes, I mean, the idea of mass trends is dead. It, it has to be. Um, because mass trends were largely created by the technological developments and the mass media of the last half of the 20th century. What we're doing now, and we've touched on this already, is going back to a world more like the 18th and 19th century, where word of mouth, rumor, gossip, scandal, what my friends tell me is more important than what the government tells me. And, okay, there is going to be a short-term hiatus here whilst the government fixes the, uh, fixes the disease and the medicos come up with the vaccine. But beyond that, we're not going to get rid of social media. The genie is out of the bottle. And so the cause of identity clustering together with people like me in our own little echo chambers is only going to accelerate. And you're therefore going to find, as you say, this roiling of fads and fancies and movements and disparate groups heading off in different directions. The old idea of trends like vast herds of wildebeest flooding across the Serengeti is gone. I guess, I guess in some ways I am an optimist. I tend to think maybe this is a situation where our common humanity starts to matter more and maybe that might resonate for a while. But, of course, um, I'm also in denial because where you say we're all going to get eventually, we'll all eventually get COVID-19, I don't want to hear that. I don't have a spleen. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a diabetic. It will kill me. It will probably most likely knock me off. And you're not a spring chicken either. No, I'm so, over 17. Are you, I mean, you're essentially saying this is what's going to kill us. Well, it will do <laughs> because unless we come up with a vaccine or, a, or an anti-serum, uh, it will happen. I mean, part of the reaction that we're going through at the moment is you, you've heard of the five stages of grief or the seven stages or whatever it is, but that sense of denial, yeah. anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Collectively, we're going through that and individually we're going through that in the face of this crisis. Eventually, we will come out the end of the other side. Either we will develop herd immunity through everybody becoming infected and that will eventually cause quite a considerable loss of life, or we will get it through uh, a vaccine being developed that will um, deal with it as we've dealt with measles, smallpox, polio, etc., um, or a combination of the two. But one way or another, <laughs> we will eventually come out the other side, and whatever we come out the other side, the normal then will be something like we've never seen before. Look, uh, David, I point out each week that we're all unable to physically make contact with various loved ones during this time of social distancing. Who are you keen to hold on, hold to your bosom when the all clear is finally given? The grandchildren, my children and their children, uh, who we're, we're forced to Skype with, but it's not the same as having a good old-fashioned cuddle with the grandchildren and having a play with them. That's right. David, it's always great to arm wrestle with you. Thank you for joining us from the Bomb Shelter. That's a pleasure. Anytime. Look, uh, ordinarily I mentioned next week's guest, but there may be a juggle. There may be a surprise. So allow me to leave you on the edge of your beanbags 
and simply say, thank you for joining me. Talk to you next week.